Okay, this is Ask Me Anything 15. It's been a while. Sorry for the delay, but many things have been happening. My app being uh, the main one, but um, presumably many or most of you are also on that, so let's jump right in. Eight years after publishing The Moral Landscape and receiving both praise and criticism, if you had to rewrite it, would you change or expand on anything? Well, I would change the subtitle. Uh, the subtitle, as I think I have said before, was a, um, a bit of a marketing push by the publisher. I remember I put my foot down to some degree, but eventually caved in. Many critics of the book only read the cover, uh, or at least their view of what you're arguing gets defined by what they read there. This quite famously and regrettably happened to Christopher Hitchens. In his book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, uh, he then had to defend the claim that religion poisons literally everything, like ice cream and massages. And, um, you know, I think there are probably moments where he attempted to do that, but the truth is there was some overreaching in the subtitle. And to some degree, that is true of the moral landscape, how science can determine human values. Uh, the thing that is not clear there is that my view of what science is is more expansive than institutional lab-coded science. History, journalism, mathematics, any rational conversation about truth is part of science, as I think of it. And there, there clearly is no boundary between any of these canonical disciplines and science. When you talk about a specific topic, the example I often use is the assassination of JFK. Uh, was he really assassinated? Is that a scientific truth? Well, yeah, except science doesn't tend to talk about assassinations, but yes, it is a journalistic truth. It's an historical truth, which is to say it's a fact. And to argue otherwise would require a very novel reading of the data, such as we have. Uh, beginning with the Zapruder film and all the photos showing Jacqueline Kennedy bereaved and bespattered with her husband's blood. So the boundaries between fact-based conversations are not what many people imagine they are. But still, that subtitle produced an immense amount of silly criticism of the book. So I would change that. I would probably say how reason can determine human values. and. I, th I guess I took a few shots at moral philosophy, which raised the ire of academic philosophers and grad students. That probably created more of a backlash than I needed. But um, as far as my actual thesis, no, there's not. You know, I, it's been a fairly bewildering experience because I haven't encountered a challenge to my core thesis that I find even intelligible much less persuasive. My core thesis is that the worst possible misery for everyone is bad, and that any movement away from that is better. And the principles by which we would move have something to do with how the universe is. The movements that are possible across the landscape of possible minds and possible experiences are constrained by 
whatever allows for minds and experiences in the first place. So a science that understood those things, conscious minds and their influences, would understand how one can move in that space. And movement in that space is all that we care about or could possibly care about. It's all that any system that cares could possibly care about. Uh, and anyone who has doubted these claims has, in my view, yet to put forward any coherent conception of where one could stand to doubt those claims. It's easy to say, well, who says the worst possible misery for everyone is bad? Right? You can say those words. I don't think you can mean those words. There is no notion of bad that can be located elsewhere. Have this conversation with me with your hand on a hot stove and tell me that you have no preference, or the preferences are cultural constructs when they run that deep. Again, there are reasons, scientific reasons, why we can't live with our hands on hot stoves. And there are uncountable versions of that kind of suffering that we have every reason to want to avoid. And these reasons reach as deep as any other act of cognition we engage. All we have is consciousness and its contents, actual or potential. So if something's going to be bad, if something is going to be wrong in this universe, if something's going to be worth shunning or avoiding, if we're going to castigate our fellow human beings for doing X, Y, or Z, well, these things have to show up in consciousness, actually or potentially, to matter. And there will be right and wrong answers about how we can navigate this space, personally and collectively. And the fact that we can't get all the right answers to every question that interests us, the fact that we can't figure out how to aggregate everyone's interests all the time, that doesn't mean that certain ways of aggregating interests aren't obviously wrong, and really wrong, objectively wrong. So let's say we can't figure out whether we should raise the speed limit or lower it because there's a trade-off between the risk of injury and death and just the daily hassle of it taking longer to get where you're going. How do we figure that out? Well, maybe we can't, but there are obviously wrong answers, right? One wrong answer is have no speed limit at all and select for the maximum number of traffic fatalities. Another answer is make the speed limit two miles an hour so that to drive is, by definition, to move more slowly than walking. Third wrong answer is just to go kill everybody. Let's just pull people out of their cars and kill them at uh, random intervals throughout the day. We know these are bad answers, objectively bad, in that they lead somewhere we know we don't want to go, for good reason. Again, reasons that have everything to do with the experiences that will be reliably produced by those policies. Now, is this science? Well, yes, it is science in the broadest possible conception. There are economic aspects to this question, sociological ones, neurological ones. All of these levels of analysis will be relevant. So in that sense, my view is unchanged. I think I would probably have brought in uh, some of the work of Karl Popper as well. I think the podcast conversations I had with David Deutsch 
impressed upon me the importance of not seeming to require a foundation to all knowledge, an unchangeable foundation from which we proceed to build our conception of what's true. Right? So you anchor all your true beliefs on some fundamental belief that can't shift. Right? That's not really what I've been doing. Uh, it's just that as you engage this mode of conjecture and criticism that Popper talked about, certain beliefs and assumptions and intuitions seem to survive every contest with all others. And the intuitions for me that have survived every challenge are these. Consciousness is the context of value. It makes no sense to talk about value in a context where nothing can ever be experienced on any level, actually or potentially. It's only when the lights come on that notions of better and worse, or good and bad, or right and wrong pertain. So consciousness is the crucial theater of our concerns. And consciousness is the one thing that can't be an illusion, right? No matter how confused we are about anything else, consciousness, whatever it is, and whatever its relationship to the rest of the universe is, is a fact. It's the first fact. It's always the first fact. And that doesn't mean we understand it. But it's on the basis of this first fact that we can care about anything. And then the question is, what can be cared about? What changes can matter or seem to matter? And how is it possible to move in that space? And there all you need is an acknowledgement that there is such a thing as better and worse experience. Right? And in the limit, I think this is undeniable. Again, the worst possible misery for everyone is bad. And if that's not immediately obvious to you, then you have to take some time and focus on the meaning of each word in that sentence. The worst possible misery for everyone. Okay? That means that in a universe filled with conscious minds, Every one of those minds suffers as much as it can possibly suffer or as long as it possibly can suffer, with nothing good coming from it. That's bad. Now, if you think you know anything more than you know that, all I can say is that I doubt it. So no one has pushed back against my thesis from a place that didn't seem to presuppose it on some level. Or they're standing somewhere that seems far more superficial, and their challenge is actually vacuous. You're talking to someone who obviously has a range of existential concerns that they're not referencing in the conversation, but they're open-minded about whether or not the worst possible misery for everyone is actually bad. This is someone who, if they had a toothache, would drop everything and go racing to the dentist. And virtually nothing would supersede that concern until they got their tooth fixed. Right? I mean, what are we actually talking about when we're raising this doubt? You can't care about politics or about your own health or about whether your kids get into college or whether your employer pays you on time and then wonder whether or not the worst possible misery for everyone 
is actually bad. That's not a philosophical position. It's not a psychologically valid position. And I realize that runs the risk of sounding fairly self-serving, but that's just my perception of it. As many of you know, I have gone out of my way to solicit criticism. I even held an essay contest at one point, uh, and you can see how that played out. But um, no, I just have yet to understand a valid challenge to my basic thesis. But I am certainly open to one. If any of you know of a good one, please send it my way. What would a Sam Harris School for Youth look like? Schedule, structure, subjects? Jocko answered a similar question on his podcast, and I'd like to get your take. Well, this is not something I've thought a lot about. I I guess my answer may not be far from Jocko's. I don't remember how Jocko answered it, but I'm sure his answer included Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And mine would as well. I mean, at least from age 13 or so on, I would definitely want kids to learn jiu-jitsu. There's just so much good that comes of it, uh, especially girls. I don't think I have anything especially novel to contribute here. the, The basic framework for me would be to acknowledge that there are critical periods in which learning something is at its easiest, right? So there's a critical period for learning language and music and sports and mathematics. And there's massive overlap in these periods, which is to say that almost everything is best learned in childhood. So on some level, you want to cram as much in as you can without making childhood less enjoyable than it needs to be. So I think above all, you want kids to love school. I think you want them to love learning. Uh, So you don't want this to be a grind. But you do want them to learn things which will become the basis for new learning, which they will value their whole lives. It's always frustrated me to see kids become fixated on things which you absolutely know they won't care about in two years, where there's actually very little that they're learning in terms of concepts or skills or social-emotional development, and it can become just a sinkhole of attention. Whereas if they're becoming absorbed by a skill that they could enjoy for the rest of their lives, like drawing, say, there's no shelf life on drawing. If you become a good illustrator by the time you're 12, you are a very different adult than if you haven't done that. So it's wonderful when kids learn things that they'll be glad they learned as kids. And I think many of us have a sense that certain subjects in school are not taught as well as they could be. Many simply become a memorization exercise, and kids are not learning any kind of fundamental principles of critical thinking or a methodology that they can use to learn new things in the future. So insofar as things are taught as just a feat of memorization, uh, I think that is less and less interesting. Yeah, I don't have anything especially novel here, apart from using the filter of what do you wish you had learned when your brain was in a state of such plasticity that learning that thing was easiest. Uh, And those are the things I would push back 
as early as possible. And then as kids get older, and certainly once you're in high school, critical thinking has to be a standalone subject matter that people engage systematically. Understanding what constitutes a good argument, how to detect bad arguments, how to debate. It should be as common to hear that somebody in high school is studying critical thinking as it is to hear they're studying history or biology or math. That's one innovation that I would highly recommend. Okay, next question. Do you think white men really have too much power, as Rebecca Tracer suggested? And how do you think a random white male like myself has any benefit from the fact that many positions of power are held by white men? Okay, interesting question. Well, that podcast with Rebecca was certainly controversial. That was, I think I tweeted that it was the most Rorschachian podcast I've ever released. That is to say, it's the most like a Rorschach blot in that it just elicited every possible reaction. I had people writing saying it was my best podcast uh, and those saying it was my worst. People really appreciated that I gave her the space to air her views uh, with very little opposition. Others communicated absolute agony and disappointment that I hadn't mopped the floor with her. So it's, it was interesting to be on the receiving end of all that. Uh, as I said in that podcast, there was a technical glitch, which has happened on several podcasts, which I call latency, and I, and I think latency was probably a misleading term for it. What happens is, occasionally, when I do these remote podcasts over the internet, the platform I'm using will seem to run the sound only in one direction. So that once my guest is talking, I can't interrupt. I'll try to interrupt. I'll say, hey, Rebecca, wait, 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 wait. And she's just not hearing me, right? So she's just talking, and then she's done, and then I talk. And that's a problem. I haven't found a solution for it. But um, to some degree, that made me a better behaved host than I might have otherwise been. But generally, I was happy to let Rebecca just say her piece. And I pushed back some. You could see where I was not agreeing with her. And then she responded however she responded to those points. So let me just answer the question. Yes, I think there is a power differential in society that correlates to a significant degree with race. So there is such a thing as white privilege. That's not just made up. It is simply a fact that black men and women have been at a historical disadvantage and remain at a disadvantage in certain situations. And the question is, what to do about that and how should we talk about that? Now, what I said to Rebecca is that power and race are, even though they're correlated, are not the same thing. And there are many situations where famous black people have a ton of privilege because they're famous, right? And rich black people have a ton of privilege because they're rich. And in both of those cases, they almost certainly have more privilege than the average white guy. So race does not explain everything with respect to differences in power. And as should have been clear in that podcast, and really in every podcast where I've touched this topic, I think the goal 
is to get to a colorblind society. We want to get to a time where the color of a person's skin is profoundly uninteresting to us. Apart from a dermatologist, no one should care about the color of your skin. How much sunblock do you have to wear at the beach? So in my view, the path can't be to care more and more about skin color. It can't be identity politics. It can't be endless allegations about white privilege, especially because the people who make these allegations now are so sloppy that more and more of the time they ring false. So, yes, the people who are especially woke on this issue do seem to me like they are members of a cult. And trying to reason with them entails all of the frustrations one finds in trying to reason with a member of a cult. So I I take the spirit of your question. And yes, there's no great way for a white person, much less a white man, to shed his privilege in the face of intersectional identity politics. But yes, there are are differences in power. There's radical inequality. There are differences in luck that are morally and politically important and will remain so. Forget about skin color. There are people who are extraordinarily good-looking. Right? We could be talking about the privilege enjoyed by beautiful people. There are people who have great genes with respect to anything we care about. People who have high baseline happiness, low baseline anxiety. People who are effortlessly good athletes. That's a privilege. That begets a certain kind of power. If, as a child, you are the best at every sport you try, okay, what does that do to you? psychologically and socially. We know. It's fantastic. There's almost no downside to being a good athlete. The only downside to being a good athlete is that you may be so good that you'll ignore many other opportunities that you would have enjoyed once you reach adulthood. So if you wind up becoming a professional baseball player, and the only thing in second position was that you were wondering whether you should be a professional football player, if you're that guy, well then you might have missed the opportunity to be a fantastic writer or mathematician because you just didn't put the time in. But however you slice this, there are differences in privilege. Some people have great genes. They're incredibly healthy. They're surrounded by people who love them from birth onward. No one close to them dies until they get into adulthood. Their families have more than enough money to give them every opportunity they can use. Right. This is privilege, and it's not just white people. Seems to be a lot of Asian privilege going around, judging from the fact that Harvard University has had to have a racist policy to keep Asians out of their student body. Perhaps you've seen these data, but if Harvard had a fair, colorblind policy, I think it would be more than half Asian. The truth is, however you want to segment society, you will find evidence of privilege you'll find disparities in how groups perform. There's a birth order privilege. Firstborns, in many ways, succeed more than their siblings. And only children have a slightly greater advantage than firstborns. I think this work was done in France, looking at college graduation rates. But the odds that a firstborn graduates college are three to four times 
those of a fifth-born child. It's a factor of three for men and a factor of four for women. So it's completely legitimate, at least by the metric of educational attainment, to worry about birth order privilege. There's geographical privilege. I think the figure is areas that are near the sea and in temperate latitudes have something like a quarter of the world's population, but over 50% of the world's GDP. And it should be clear, this has nothing to do with genetics or discrimination or anything else. Here we're talking about the consequences of where you live. And of course, not everyone is free to move. So there are differences in luck that we should care about. And we should want a social safety net that gets higher and higher, right? Where life gets better and better for the least lucky people. That is what progress looks like, at least in my mind. And all of that should become colorblind as quickly as we can get there. And in my view, identity politics is not only not a way of getting there, it is a way of not getting there. It is a way of stalling progress. And uh, if I'm wrong about that, I await the podcast guest who can demonstrate that. Okay, next question. What is your relationship to money? How important is it to your happiness? How does it guide your decisions as a public intellectual? Well, we're all aware of research that has told us that money does not buy happiness. Whether we know it or not, most of us are referencing a study done about 10 years ago by um, the economists Angus Deaton and Daniel Kahneman, the famous behavioral economist, both of whom have won Nobel Prizes. But the study is often summarized as showing that happiness and income are only correlated up to about $75,000 a year. And then after that, it seemed not to matter how much money you made. And there are a couple things misleading about this. I mean, people have seized upon this $75,000 figure as though it were surprisingly low. But, of course, with respect to the world, earning $75,000 a year puts you somewhere near the top 1% of people. In fact, I think that's more than twice what you need to make it into the global 1%. I think it's something like $34,000 a year in income gets you into the top 1% globally. That's income. Wealth is different. I think you can need something like $700,000 in assets to be in the top 1% globally. And those two numbers don't seem to make a lot of sense together in the United States because I think people don't save as much on average. Anyway, those, I believe, are the figures globally. So earning $75,000 a year year after year, already makes you an outlier in global terms. So if happiness goes up as you earn your way toward $75,000 a year, well then, money does buy happiness, speaking globally. But the other detail that people tended not to notice is that there are two notions of happiness that these guys were working with. One was day-to-day feelings of well-being which, if I'm not mistaken, I don't have the paper in front of me, probably represented Kahneman's notion of the experiencing self, 
but there's the more global, retrospective sense that comes from the remembering self. And here I think they used a notion of life satisfaction or how good is your life overall. Uh, And there, the correlation no longer breaks down. The richer you are, the more you tend to give positive ratings to questions of life satisfaction, as opposed to hour-by-hour emotional well-being. Uh, And both, obviously, matter. Actually, I'll pull up the abstract now, just so we can get it from the horse's mouth. The paper is from 2010, High Income Improves Evaluation of Life But Not Emotional Well-Being. Daniel Kahneman and Angus Deaton. Here's the abstract. Recent research has begun to distinguish two aspects of subjective well-being. Emotional well-being refers to the emotional quality of an individual's everyday experience, the frequency and intensity of experiences of joy, stress, sadness, anger, and affection that make one's life pleasant or unpleasant. Life evaluation refers to the thoughts that people have about their life when they think about it. We raise the question of whether money buys happiness separately for these two aspects of well-being. We report an analysis of more than 450,000 responses to the Gallup Healthways Well-Being Index, a daily survey of 1,000 U.S. residents conducted by the Gallup organization. We find that emotional well-being, measured by questions about emotional experiences yesterday, and life evaluation, measured by Cantrell's self-anchoring scale, have different correlates. Income and education are more closely related to life evaluation, but health, caregiving, loneliness, and smoking are relatively stronger predictors of daily emotions. When plotted against log income, life evaluation rises steadily. Emotional well-being also rises with log income, but there is no further progress beyond an annual income of $75,000. Low income exacerbates the emotional pain associated with such misfortunes as divorce, ill health, and being alone. We conclude that high income buys life satisfaction but not happiness, and that low income is associated both with low life evaluation and low emotional well-being. Okay, so there's some terms of jargon there, but it is very hard to walk away from that finding and honestly draw the conclusion that money isn't essential for most people's happiness, right? It seems to be important for everyone, by virtually any measure of happiness, up to $75,000 a year. So speaking globally, very few of us are in that lifeboat. And beyond that, for everyone making at least $75,000 a year, increased wealth still seems to be correlated with increases in life satisfaction, which is the measure you get when you're talking to people about how satisfied they are with their lives, all things considered. So, money is clearly important, uh, and one reason why it's important, and now I'm speaking personally, uh, is because of the, the standard equation we all know between money and time. If you have the money, you can buy someone else's time so that they can do something that they are better qualified to do or that you would rather not do. And, th- and there's just no question that that can become a significant factor in living a happy life. Now, it's not to say that a person can't be happy doing boring, menial work for which they are poorly paid. As I've pointed out, one can be happy alone in a cave. That is possible. It's just not easy. And you'll still be limited in the kinds of things you can do in your life. So money matters 
within the sphere of most things that matter, because it can be converted into most things. It can be converted into free time, above all. And if you care about how you spend your time, as most of us do, it really can matter. And it opens the doors to things that can be quite rewarding. To have enough money so that you can give money away to good causes and make a difference in that way. Again, exchanging money for time, right? So rather than figuring out how you can spend a lot of your time helping kids with cancer, you can just give money to St. Jude's Hospital, one of the best places on earth where kids with cancer can go for treatment. And that kind of telescopic philanthropy, where you're really just cutting a check, that can be genuinely rewarding if you connect with what you're doing. So I'm definitely not someone who minimizes the significance of money. And to some degree, you know, I have to triage what I do with money as the relevant variable. So if someone wants me to get on an airplane to give a talk or debate somebody, right? Now, there are situations where I will do that for free because the opportunity is just so good for other reasons, given the audience I'll be speaking to or the person I'll be in dialogue with. There are even situations where I will spend a lot of money to do that thing, where it's not only not profitable for me, but it's actually expensive for me to do it, where I'll pay my own travel, and I'll have to hire my own security, and I'm speaking for free. That occasionally happens. But more and more, given how many invitations I get now, I use money as a filter. So I have a speaking fee, and if someone can't pay it, well then, that makes many of these offers go away. And that's a good thing, because what I'm really short on is time. Everything is an opportunity cost. And I use money as a way of protecting my time. And that's why, frankly, I've had to push so hard to turn this podcast into a real business. And that's why I'm so grateful to all of you for supporting it. I've had to work against everyone's expectation that podcasting should be either sponsored by ads and therefore free, or it should just be free. And the thing I've had to solve for is the fact that this really is what I should be doing with a lot of my time. It is one of the most effective uses of my time. There's no question about that. When people come up to me on the street and thank me for my work, nine times out of ten, they're thanking me for my podcasts or for videos they happen to have seen on YouTube for which I'm not compensated. It's not to say that my writing books isn't also a good use of my time, but I've had to get the podcast into a position where, from a business point of view, it is at least as good a use of my time as writing books. Because originally, it was a waste of my time. It was the free content I was putting out that many people might assume would be promoting my books, but in reality, it's in competition with my books. This has been clear for a very long time that all of us who are producing content online, you know, writing books, giving TED Talks, doing interviews, writing articles for publications, paid or otherwise, we are perpetually in competition with free versions of ourselves. 
So, yes, some things promote books semi-effectively, but unless the book is really offering something that you are not giving away for free when you're talking about that book, you will erode some number of people's reasons for buying and reading it. Money aside, everyone is experiencing a bandwidth problem with respect to their own attention. And if I can feel that I've gotten an author's argument or data from their TED Talk or from the one-hour podcast I heard them do, I will take that opportunity not to buy and read their book because I'm short on time. So where this podcast is concerned, I've had to make it a real business in an environment where the expectation is it has to be given away for free. And all of you who are supporting the podcast have come to the rescue, which is fantastic. And now that I've done that, now that it is a real business, now that there's enough of you supporting this work, now my incentives are aligned, right? Now it makes sense for me to get up tomorrow and prioritize the podcast. And the flip side is, if after some months or a year or so of trying, I couldn't make this a legitimate business, and the time I spent on it was always synonymous with me losing money, right, as an opportunity cost, well, then I wouldn't do it. I couldn't afford to do it. So insofar as I get other opportunities competing for my time, for the podcast to still rank high on my list of priorities, it has to be a rational business decision. And more and more, I'm looking for creative ways to solve that problem. But all of you who became early adopters and sponsored content that you didn't need to pay for because it was free, you are the ones who have made that possible. So if you're living in the world trying to get things done and you care about what you do on an hour-by-hour basis, money is very important and more of it is good, right? There's just no question. At a minimum, if somebody dumps a pot of money on you, you can give it away to good causes and that feels good and it opens doors for you. Philanthropy is a very good thing. And more and more, as you see how societies improve, this kind of anti-capitalist message one gets from the left looks more and more delusional. I mean, we, we really do want societies where people are incentivized to work creatively in a context where we redistribute enough of the fruits of their labor so that the safety net catches everyone at an acceptable level. And therefore, we account for the worst disparities in luck and in opportunity. So we do want all boats to be rising with the same tide, but the tide is, on some basic level, wealth creation. We want more wealth creation. And it doesn't help anyone to be cynical about that. There is absolutely no reason to be sentimental about what life was like in the 18th century, right? where even the aristocracy routinely suffered from disease and injury and other signs of deprivation that we consider shocking today. So this is a story of wealth creation and knowledge creation, which in many instances depends upon wealth creation. That's progress. And it seems to me that there are far too many taboos especially on the left, around acknowledging the importance of wealth. In fact, 
wealth is often a bad word, and corporations are demonized. When you look at the connection between prosperity and the free attention we all need to gather knowledge and promote it, this seems completely delusional. Now, it's not to say that there aren't problems with capitalism, but we want to fix those problems. So I don't know if I answered your question there, but I really do view money more and more as synonymous with time and an ability to enlist other people's energy creatively in support of any cause I care about. It's very hard for me to be cynical about that. In the article, Why We Hate You and Why We Fight You, ISIS explicitly points to their religious ideology as their single motivation for terrorism. In the Freakonomics episode titled, Is There a Better Way to Fight Terrorism?, political scientist Robert Pape explains a study he did on all suicide attacks from the early 1980s to 2003, and through his findings claims that the root cause, which 95% of those attacks shared, was foreign military occupation. In fact, the deadliest terrorist group during that period was the secular Sri Lankan Tamil Tigers. Do you contest his findings? Do you think military occupation could have been a subtle root cause for ISIS? Um, yes, well, briefly, I, I do contest his findings, and I contest his interpretation of his findings. And I attempted to contest all of that in debate with him long ago, and he just disappeared on me. Uh, he agreed to debate me. Uh, I sent him the first volley of a, this was going to be a written debate. I sent him the first volley, and then he ghosted on me uh, without any explanation and was never heard from again. I sent him probably three or four emails trying to find out what happened. Um, we had been in touch by email. I don't know if some chaos intervened in his life or he discovered that there was something about that first volley that he didn't want to interact with. But yes, I think he just can't see the forest for the trees here. Yes, of course, foreign military occupation is an irritant that has produced terrorism to some degree. And this terrorism has therefore been, at least in part, politically motivated. But uh, when you're talking about the suicidal terrorism practiced by Muslims who explicitly state their religious objectives, and when you see this directed by Sunnis against Shia, right, let's say in Pakistan, where there is no occupation to talk about, clearly there is a religious variant of this which focuses on things like martyrdom. So I would never argue that all terrorism, or even all suicidal terrorism, is religious. But certainly much of it has been, and most of it is now. The Tamil Tigers were defeated and are no longer an issue. And Pape displays the same propensity for interpreting explicitly religious motives in secular, political ways that many other academics do. Actually, here's an analogy that I don't use enough that makes this point well. There was just an article in the New York Times this last week about the caste system in India and how it still is in effect pretty much everywhere once you get outside of big cities. 
and it takes the most horrible forms. Right, you've got upper caste people routinely abusing and even killing lower caste people, and they get away with it. It's a nightmare. The phenomenon of untouchability, the people at the absolute bottom caste, the Dalits, talk about differentials in privilege, right? This is a horrific apartheid-level suffering and discrimination based not on the color of anyone's skin, but based on the caste to which they belong. Now, the caste system is a religious framework. It's a religious segmentation of society based on certain teachings in Hinduism and anchored to this notion of karma and rebirth, right? So that everyone is the caste they are based on karma from past lives, right? And that's why it makes moral sense. If you're a low caste, you are paying the price for your misdeeds in previous lives. This is a quite crazy idea that no rational, ethical person who's not a Hindu would defend. And there's no one like Robert Pape walking around arguing that the caste system has nothing to do with religion or that it is best explained by political or economic factors. And my argument has always been that while other factors can sometimes be seen, the necessary and sufficient conditions for jihadist mayhem and terrorism have been the doctrines of jihad and martyrdom in the same way that the necessary and sufficient conditions for the caste system are the relevant doctrines within Hinduism. And for some reason, this is always clear when you talk about the caste system. It has no apologists in the West, or at least none that I've encountered. And the link to specific doctrines is clear. Specific ideas have produced and justified an appalling mistreatment of people now going back thousands of years. So it seems to me that most people can recognize that the caste system is evil and it is a religious evil. When you're talking about Islamic terrorism and more generally when you're talking about the aspirations and behavior of a group like the Islamic State and their ability to recruit from the rest of the world, the necessary and sufficient conditions for that are not foreign occupation. They're specific religious doctrines. And Pape's analysis is powerless to explain the myriad cases where we see people who have no discernible political grievance, they have economic and educational opportunities, and they get recruited into terror organizations in the Muslim world. There are people who believe in paradise and in martyrdom as a means of getting there. That has an effect. If you're not going to acknowledge that that is a phenomenon, even when, as the questioner reminds me, the Islamic State laid out their motives in religious terms with absolute clarity, I think someone like Pape would say, well, that was just propaganda. Perhaps the writers didn't even believe the doctrines. But it only works as propaganda because some number of people reading it believe in martyrdom. For a lever to work when you pull it, it has to be in contact with something. In this case, it's always in contact with the sincere religious beliefs of someone. Otherwise, religion can never be cynically used to manipulate people or to change their behavior in any way at all. In any case, that's my file on Robert Pape. 
And next question. Did you listen to the David Frum and Steve Bannon debate on populism? What are your thoughts? Yes, I did watch that, and I thought it was well worth watching. I thought uh, Frum did a great job. Uh, the result at the end, where this was a, one of these IQ squared debates, where they tell you what people thought at the beginning and whether their minds were changed at the end. And there was a glitch where the change they presented suggested that Bannon had won. Uh, that turned out not to be the case, uh, but it was very disorienting. It was, it was almost like David Frum had been enlisted in a psychological experiment to which he had not consented uh, because he was absolutely mystified by the result, as well he should have been. So um, that got corrected online, but unfortunately, the YouTube video of the debate will have the error advertised until the end of the world. So um, I think the lie will outlast the truth there. Anyway, I felt Bannon was also quite effective. He's, a, he's very funny. Uh, he's very comfortable on stage, uh, eliciting the ire of a liberal audience. But I thought David was quite right to engage him. I don't think there's anything wrong in giving a platform to Bannon uh, for the purposes of interview or debate. And obviously, I side with from in that particular debate. Uh, so, yeah, well done, David. Which news sources do you trust and why? Well, there will not be too many surprises here. I read the New York Times regularly. I read magazines like The Atlantic. I also read The Washington Post. Uh, most of these journals are making a sincere effort to get their facts straight. It's not that there's not political bias and basic human error creeping in, but most of the stuff is not fiction. And you can't compare what the New York Times is doing to what Breitbart is up to or, or what Fox News is up to. And there are analogous journals or pseudo-journals on the left. I mean, I consider Alternet and Salon about as reputable as some extreme right-wing website. So I do trust journals that take the time and expend the resources to fact-check and to correct errors uh, and to sort things out and have displayed journalistic integrity in the past. And uh, that is why evidence of real bias in them is so disconcerting when it surfaces. And it does surface. None of these newspapers or magazines or websites are perfect. And when there is coverage on a topic that I happen to know a lot about, which is politically polarized, something like the connection between the religion of Islam and jihadist terrorism, uh, yeah, then you can often see reporting that is less than candid. And uh, I worry about that, and I complain about it loudly when I notice. Ironically, I think Trump has been good for journalism. That's one thing he has been good for. I think subscriptions are up for many good newspapers and magazines. Uh, there, there was a previous question about money here, and I think with journalism, you do get what you pay for. If you're not willing to pay for journalism, the whole world will become the Huffington Post or Breitbart. We need journalists who are paid to write 
deeply researched, fact-checked, copy-edited, long-form articles about topics that are not clickbait, right, that will not drive a ton of traffic. You know, a climate change report that takes six months to research and write and which will disappear quickly in the blizzard of clickbait online, we still need magazines and newspapers that will commission and publish those pieces. And the only way that'll happen is if we subscribe to them. Multiple antibiotic-resistant bacteria is more of an existential threat than AI, but is arguably not as sexy. Please discuss or have a conversation with someone who can elucidate the gravity of this threat. Uh, yeah, I, I should have someone on who can talk about that. But yes, I acknowledge it's a huge issue. I don't know how it compares to AI at this point, but it is a certainly both a near and long-term issue of enormous importance. It is one where, unfortunately, the free market is clearly failing to protect us, right? We all want the next generation of antibiotics that can save us from an emerging pandemic. But because antibiotics are drugs that you take maybe once every 10 years for a week or 10 days, there's not sufficient profit and it takes a billion dollars or so to develop each one. So this is something that governments and philanthropists have to get together on and correct for the way in which the free market is not incentivizing pharmaceutical companies. But as far as having a conversation about scary superbugs, I will do that one of these days. Have you ever struggled with procrastination? What do you think is the best approach to it? Do you think mindfulness can be utilized to tackle procrastination? Well, on the last point, yes, I think mindfulness can be utilized to tackle almost anything because it really is just an increased awareness of what is actually arising in your mind. So becoming more mindful is synonymous with your becoming more aware of what you actually want what you're resisting, what you're anxious about. Uh, and insofar as you can see that more and more clearly, you can begin to make more intelligent choices about what you do and how you respond to things. So, yes, this applies to procrastination as well. Procrastination is often born of anxiety and a fear of failure. If you knew you were going to succeed, right, if you knew the best case was not only possible, but actual. You could just go out and grab that thing you want. If you want to write a novel, and you knew the novel you were going to write was going to be great and well-received, right? Well, then you just sit down and write it. It's the uncertainty about all that. It's the fear you have that you might fail or embarrass yourself or not finish the project. That's often what's barring the door. So. It's good to be aware of that, right? What are you afraid of? What would you do if you knew you would succeed at anything you attempted to do? What would your priorities be then? That's a good question to ask. But as far as a practical remedy for procrastination, I think the best advice is to break off the smallest possible piece of a project and get started, right? If you're writing a novel, 
right, or you want to write a novel, and you're procrastinating, set yourself a goal of writing three sentences every day for the next week. And if you can't do that, well, then, of course, you can't write a novel. And if you won't do that, then, of course, you won't write a novel. But doing that will begin the process. Find an increment, a first foothold on this problem that you want to solve or this project you want to complete and simply start. You can accomplish that first increment, whatever it is. That's how you stop procrastinating. You just start. And once you've started, it's a different conversation with yourself. Often, it's as simple as setting aside the time, just scheduling the time and resolving to do nothing else with that block of time. If you have a time on your calendar that is set aside for writing your novel and you put yourself in front of your computer at the appointed hour, that's most of the job. Then just make sure you don't squander that hour on social media. And magically, you'll no longer be procrastinating. Is it possible to understand that the ego is an illusion without actually experiencing it? Uh, Absolutely. In fact, that's far more common. Uh, You can understand that the ego is an illusion, or put another way, that it can't be what it seems, very simply. Uh, You can understand it logically, neurologically. It's a little bit like the notion of free will. You can't quite make sense of it. First, neurologically, uh, as I've said many times before, there is no place in the human brain where the ego can be hiding. There's no place in the brain where everything comes together. There's no time where it all comes together, really. Even our perception of the present moment must be a series of layered memories and information that has been essentially buffered before being delivered to consciousness. So if you see your hand in front of you and you snap your fingers, we know that the visual data are arriving at the cortex earlier than the haptic or touch-related data. It's just that the transit time through the nerves up your arm to your cortex is longer than through the optic nerve, and yet we don't detect any disparity there. But more generally, your mental experience of the world is a process. It is not a static something. So the experience of being a self, an ego, in the middle of all of these changing neurophysiological states, it too must be a process. It's a verb. It's not a noun. You are selfing your experience. You are not a self standing in the middle of experience. Self is a kind of action. It's the act of identifying. It's the act of grasping. And it's an action that can be interrupted. It's an action that can be relinquished. Right? And this is an empirical fact. You can discover this for yourself. And meditation is the technique whereby you would do that, or at least one of them. But you can understand intellectually how it can't be what it seems to be. Another route in, apart from the underlying neurology, is the logical one with respect to the nature of consciousness. If everything 
that we experience must arise in consciousness to be experienced. If every sight, sound, sensation, emotion must appear in the space of awareness to be known. And I think that is almost tautologically true. What we mean by consciousness is the fact that things are experienced. So if the self is experienced in any way at all, if it has any empirical signature, if there's anything by which it can be noticed, well, that thing must be an appearance in consciousness. It must be a kind of object for consciousness. Consciousness, therefore, must be prior to it. Consciousness can't be truly defined by it. Any object you notice in consciousness, like a sight or a sound, can't entirely subsume what consciousness is, right? It's an object for it. Consciousness is the condition in which it appears. Now, that may sound dualistic, and as many of you know, ultimately I believe consciousness is, as a matter of experience, non-dualistic, but let's leave that aside for the moment. Whatever the sense of self is, as a feeling, it is being known by this prior fact of consciousness. So it would make sense if consciousness itself were not truly identical to this feeling of self, which is yet another object arising to be known. And again, all of this can be experienced. You can directly notice that consciousness doesn't feel like what you're calling I. It doesn't feel like an ego. It doesn't feel like a self. You can look for this sense of self and fail to find it in a way that is entirely compelling. The question was, is it possible to understand that this might be so without actually having this compelling experience? Another way to recognize it is more or less of a piece with all the considerations I've given about free will in my books and on other podcasts and in the Waking Up course. So, I mean, what does this sense of self entail? How far does it reach? Let's say you feel it now. You're the ego riding around in your head that enjoys free will, presumably. Well, what can you do? Can you not hear my voice now? Can you actually withdraw your hearing and put it somewhere else? Can you not understand these words? If you speak English, you will helplessly decode each word as I speak it. You have no idea how you do that. You can't not do it. Can you choose the next thought that arises in consciousness? Well, no, you can't even do that, right? It might feel like you've done it because you're identified with this thought as it appears in consciousness. But if you pay closer attention, you'll see that you can't decide what you think or intend or desire. And if suddenly you seem to go against the grain of what you think, intend, and desire in the next moment, you decide to execute a veto of sorts, well, where did that come from? Were you upstream from that? Not as a conscious ego, you weren't. This self you think you have is on the receiving end of everything. It's the last to know what it's going to do. You know, that, that verges on a kind of meditation to look very closely there in that way. But conceptually, it also delivers the point. If you can't find anything for this ego to do, right, all the things it thinks it's doing, it's not doing. 
So in what sense is it even there? Anyway, there are many other considerations that are conceptual, that undermine this notion of an ego. There are many within Buddhism in particular that undermine the notion of any intrinsically existing thing. It's not just egos that don't exist. But by this measure, no independent thing exists in and of itself. Everything is a set of relationships. Right? When you think about a car, you know, what is a car? Well, a car is a relationship among car parts, but none of the parts carry their carness in them. You know, a door is not a car, and it doesn't have carness. It's a door, which itself can be broken into smaller elements. So does the car exist without a door and without wheels and without a windshield? Well, you take away enough parts, it ceases to be a car. And when you combine the right parts, suddenly a car emerges, but a car, again, is a pattern of relationships. There's no car essence. There's no one place in the car where it all comes together. There's no ego for the car. And that's true for anything else you want to point to in the natural world or in the artificial world. What we see are sets of relationships that have functional properties. And if the self is that sort of thing, if the self is just a set of relationships among processes and structures that are continually changing and eroding and being replaced, some of which are conscious, some of which aren't, well, that's not the self that people feel they have. That's not the ego that wakes up every morning thinking it's the same person. So this pristine, unchanging center of consciousness that is the thinker of thoughts and the experiencer of experience, that cognitive and emotional homunculus can't be found and doesn't make logical sense. How does an intensely voluntary choice slash action feel when the illusion of the self vanishes? Insofar as an action is, quote, intensely voluntary, think of what those words mean. Think of something that you feel like you should do, you need to do. It's absolutely central to your identity that you do this thing. Like your child is injured and crying and you need to pick her up and console her. And if you didn't do that thing, you'd be a monster. Now, this is the kind of action that is absolutely voluntary, but it's also important. It's not analogous to an experiment where you're deciding whether to move your right or left hand, and it doesn't matter which one you move. This is you. You'd be a different person if you didn't take this action. Well, in moments like that, I experience zero degrees of freedom. There's no choice. You have to do it. Whatever this wind is at your back, it's pushing hard. You're being blown around by something that is not you, right? That you didn't create. Did you create the parameters under which you would feel like a monster if you didn't do this thing? No. I no more create that than I've created the rules of English grammar that dictate whether this is a sentence, right? If I make a mistake here and detect it, all of that seems 
completely without my own agency. And if I get it right, that's also mysterious. I didn't create anything in this space that is determining success or failure. Another aspect here is with respect to what it means to reason effectively. People often claim that without free will, there's no such thing as reason, right? How would you be reasoning? But reasoning is what constrains you, right? There is no freedom. Two plus two makes four. You either see that or you don't. Where's the freedom? Freedom is a little easier to get at here than selfhood, but they're two sides of the same coin. To recognize that there's no self is to recognize that the emergence of anything, while perhaps explicable in terms of prior events and causes, is mysterious. Now, the fact that I'm speaking in English can be explained. It's the only language I can do this in. If I attempt to do it in French, I can make a little headway, but not being fluent, I'll make all kinds of errors. And it would be genuinely mysterious if I started doing this in Mandarin, never having studied Mandarin. That would cry out for explanation. But there is still a mystery to the emergence of anything into consciousness. The next sound, the next sight, the next thought, the next utterance, the next action. Everything is emerging out of the darkness on some level. And the feeling of self is a way of not recognizing that fact consciously. It's the illusion that you are the author. There is no author. There is process in patterns. But no pattern exists in and of itself. It's a series of relationships. Take the next thought. What is it? Where is it? Where does it start and where does it end? Where is its middle? If the self exists, where is that? Where is its front and back? Or top and bottom? So, a voluntary action without a sense of self is just an appearance among appearances. It's different, however, from an involuntary action in that one of the things that appears in a stream of volition are intentions, and in many cases, consciously formed goals. Let's say you want to make a cup of coffee. The thought about coffee arises. It's associated with desire rather than disgust. Uh, And then an action plan emerges, much of which is pre-conscious, but it has conscious reference points. You might have the thought, oh, wait a minute, are we out of coffee? Do I have to actually go to the store to get some coffee? And you'll do things in the appropriate sequence. If you have to put a filter somewhere before you put the coffee in, well, you'll put the the filter in first. But much of this, if you pay attention, is an automaticity. And there can be glitches in your experience that reveal this. So much of our behavior in the middle of complex behavior, any one of these subroutines, is unconsciously initiated. So a voluntary action is not identical to an involuntary one, but they're identical insofar as things are simply arising within consciousness and being experienced. Voluntary or involuntary, 
the roots of an action are mysterious, the parameters by which it gets accomplished are also mysterious. And when I say mysterious, it's not that there cannot be an explanation for these things. We can understand scientifically how human beings move their arms, whether by reflex or by intention. But the mystery is always present from the first person point of view, from the point of view of conscious experience. As much as you might know about neurophysiology, you are not in a position to know how you move your hand in this moment through introspection. Things simply appear in consciousness and change and vanish. And that includes voluntary action. Anecdotally, there appears to be a correlation between religiosity and climate change denial. Can you explain this? I'm sure polling has been done on this. I forget where. I'm sure Gallup or Pew have run these polls. I can virtually guarantee that if you poll Americans, uh, there will be a correlation between religiosity and skepticism with respect to climate change. And there are a few reasons for that. I mean, one is just what the political landscape has done to all the minds involved. But there's an additional onus to be placed on religion here because, speaking in particular about Christianity and Islam, there is a, an explicit denial of the importance of this world, right? Because eternity awaits us. And when you look at the specifics of end times prophecy in both of these traditions, it's clear that there is no project here to be fulfilled. We're not going to sustain human life here, ultimately. Uh, in fact, the worse things get on some level, the better they're getting with respect to prophecy. So there's no basis to care about the far future if what you really care about is getting into heaven or paradise. Uh, and that's not an accident. This stuff is explicitly taught. And fundamentalist Christians in America are often taught that the world has been created for us to use. Human beings are absolutely central here. God gave us the garden. He gave us the beasts of the field to use as we see fit. And everything in the natural world is essentially a resource for us. What's more, we know that Jesus is going to come back and raise the dead after we have proven ourselves completely incapable of running things here effectively. So climate change, in addition to all of the other difficulties that confront us in taking it seriously, just the fact that it's very hard for human beings to think about the far future and care about it, it's even hard for us to care about the world that our children are guaranteed to live in. This is called hyperbolic discounting. Right? We discount the future so heavily, psychologically, that we're badly placed to care about a long-term emergency like climate change. But add religion to that, and it becomes truly impossible. Now, it would be possible to have a religion that made it easier to care about climate change and easier to care about the far future. And that would be arguably better than a cold rationality that couldn't pull the reins of our emotions. Right? So if you, wanted to, if you want to make the case that we need religion 
and some form of irrational dogmatism would be better than pure rationality. This is an area where you might make it. If we could create a religion that got us to prioritize what we should prioritize, all things taken together, and it functioned in a way that, that a rational conversation can't, well, that would be a religion worth spreading. But which religion is that? To some degree, environmentalism might be that religion. There may be claims being made among environmentalists that are dogmatic or not strictly honest, but are captivating. And this may be important. I actually don't know. My bias is to think that actually understanding a problem clearly enough can get us there, but that remains to be seen on the topic of climate change. In the last few minutes of your conversation with Brian Green, it seemed that one of your cornerstone beliefs about free will was shaken. Due to the inherent randomness entrenched in quantum mechanics, even if the universe wasn't exactly the same state that it had been at some point in the past, it would still proceed to evolve in a different manner. In other words, we could have done otherwise in the past. We just wouldn't be responsible for those different outcomes. Quantum uncertainty would. Please consider addressing this modification to your views. Um, actually, it wasn't a modification of my views, although you could be forgiven for thinking that. It's irrelevant. It's a red herring. If rolling the dice, quantum or otherwise, gives you a change in behavior, well then, that's not a demonstration of free will. I still find it worth talking about returning the universe to its previous state and everything rolling forward the same way, because as a matter of gross determinism, that is still the case. It's not that human behavior is at every point susceptible to quantum uncertainty. You know, you would do the same thing a thousand times in a row, even with certain quantum fluctuations, because you're doing that thing is so massively overdetermined at the gross scale. So in these cases where you would have done otherwise based on quantum randomness, those introduce nothing with respect to free will. And there are all these other cases where if we rolled back the clock, you would do the same thing. Take what you ordered for lunch yesterday. Right? How susceptible was that to quantum fluctuation? There are things on most menus that you're not even slightly tempted to eat because you don't like those things. Let's say, you know, mussels. Let's say you don't like mussels. Every time you look at a menu and there are mussels on it, the chance that you're going to order mussels is nearly zero. There's no quantum fluctuation that's likely to change that in our universe. And if there's some universe, some outlier universe, where you're ordering mussels half the time, well, then you're very different in that universe. If I could return you to who you were yesterday in this universe, you're still not going to order the muscles. And it's through no free will of your own. You didn't invent yourself. You didn't determine that you don't like muscles. Anyway, it's a caveat, but it's not actually a change in the way I see these things. The question here about my notion of the moral landscape. Isn't the moral landscape analogy a tacit acknowledgement that the good is dependent on how one's personal values and preferences play out in consonance or dissonance against cultural values and preferences. Despite the fact that your theory claims that there are scientifically determined values, if there are different peaks and valleys in the landscape, then isn't that just a soft form of moral relativism? 
i.e. that they are moral truths, but they are dependent on cultural, environmental, and historical contingencies. Yes, but even if there are many peaks, there's still a radical difference between being on a peak and being down in a valley. There are still right and wrong answers with respect to how to go up and how to go down. Really right and wrong answers. Answers that you can't make up for yourself. And I'm not discounting the relevance of culture or environment or history. Uh, I mean, take, take a totally artificial and unnecessary form of suffering. Take the fact that if you burn a Quran publicly and millions of Muslims find out about it, millions of Muslims will claim to be deeply aggrieved, right? And m- many will pour into the streets and risk their lives, and some will even give up their lives to express that grievance. We know this. I'm not discounting the reality of that suffering. I'm not saying that millions of people are lying about being aggrieved. They're suffering over the wrong thing. I would acknowledge that their suffering is real. If they think it's real, it's real on some level. We can explain the beliefs and cultural norms that have caused them to suffer over this thing. So it has causes and conditions, and many of them are cultural and historical. But it's also just as clear that this is not a peak on the moral landscape. And it's preventing this, this lack of resilience in the face of criticism, this lack of having a culture of criticism, right? This lack of insight into a process whereby one would select for better ideas and the primacy of freedom of speech and freedom of thought with respect to that project. This utterly childish and superstitious attitude around the significance of any specific book. I mean, all of this is preventing ethical and intellectual and therefore technological progress in these societies that are totally captivated by this level of religious dogmatism and intolerance. Again, the suffering is real, but it's also unnecessary, and it's preventing these cultures from moving forward. Say something bad about my prophet and I'll kill you. That's, that's not a way of walking into a as yet undiscovered future together. It's not moral relativism in the sense in which most people use that term. Moral relativism in this case would say, who are we to say that this howling mob of religious maniacs is wrong when they want to lynch someone for burning a Quran, or even saying something bad about the Quran. Where can we stand to say they're wrong? There's nowhere to stand. That's moral relativism. And it's clearly self-contradictory, because every moral relativist is tacitly asserting radical tolerance of diversity as a universal ethic. And of course, it could be no such thing if relativism is true. When we focus our attention on consciousness, who is it that is being attentive? In other words, which faculty of mind can set the focus to the experience of consciousness? Well, like many of these kinds of questions, much of this seems backwards from the experience of just noticing how consciousness is. It's not that you're focusing your attention 
on consciousness, you are simply ceasing to be distracted, right? You're ceasing to be identified with thought and with attention itself. The feeling that you can direct your attention is part of this undercurrent of thinking that you're not noticing, right? There's simply consciousness already. Everything is appearing on its own, including acts of attention. The truth is you don't even have to be attentive. You simply have to no longer be distracted. You're ceasing to do something. You're not doing something. The sense that you're doing something is more distraction. Simply notice the next thing that you notice. Something will appear. And meditation is just that. Clearly experiencing consciousness and its contents in each moment prior to concepts, prior to identification with thought. So the usual starting point in meditation, a feeling that you are the locus of attention, and that you have a kind of spotlight that you can direct strategically to the breath or to sounds or to any other object. It can seem that way, but if you look more closely, if you look for the seat of attention, if you look for the one who is shining the spotlight, there is nothing to find. Right? And then what you have is simply consciousness and its contents. It's not that you can't pay attention to anything. It's not that you suddenly lose your intelligence. But you notice that all of this, from acts of attention to acts of will, all of it is simply appearing on its own. Everything is in its own place. Right? There's no center. It's a loss of the sense that there's a center to consciousness in each moment that is the fundamental change. The contents need not change. Okay, next question. If you needed to use AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, to better your life, how would you rationalize an honest and reliable, quote, higher power? This is one of the 12 steps and is subsequently utilized in many others. Frankly, I've never seen a problem with this. There are problems with AA, perhaps. I think its efficacy is certainly disputable because so many people drop out. You know, there's a file drawer effect. I'm not sure there are good stats on the success rate there, but there's no question that many people have found value in AA, and it seems to me that you could grant your assent to a higher power without believing anything irrational, right? I mean, the, the universe is a higher power. Your own mind is a higher power with respect to your conscious awareness. You didn't invent yourself. You don't know what your resources actually are. Undoubtedly, they run deeper than you're aware of. So your capacity to change yourself is fundamentally mysterious. I have no hesitation in thinking of that as a kind of higher power or a deeper one, certainly. There's more to you than you experience. That is a fact. And whatever you are, you are permeable to a much wider set of influences than you're aware of or that you can control. You are not in a position to decide how you're affected by the next conversation you have. You will simply be affected. So, 
higher power? That's fine. Another question about my podcast with Rebecca Traster. Uh, Hi, Sam. I just listened to your podcast with Rebecca Traster. I'd like to point out that your examples for the possible negative effect of the Me Too movement involved almost entirely wealthy and powerful individuals. Where the real rubber will meet the road, however, will be in HR departments of companies and corporations where non-famous people can wield quite a lot of power over other non-famous people who simply need a job to support their families. Average applicants don't have multi-million dollar nest eggs and can't rely on previous fame and power to rekindle their careers. Yeah, well, point taken. Um, And that, that was one place where I really disagreed with Rebecca. She seemed to have a far too cavalier attitude around people losing their jobs as a result of being mobbed on social media or just attacked within their companies. But the reason why I was referencing famous instances of the mob effectively or nearly effectively destroying someone's career is because, one, we all know about these cases, but two, these are cases where, as you say, these people are the most resilient. If even Matt Damon feels that he can't afford to speak honestly on this topic and must produce an abject, ritualized apology in response to what he sees on social media, then what could we possibly expect of normal people, right? That's my point. The celebrities are functioning as a kind of reverse canary in the coal mine, but we have the least sensitive detectors of social pressure showing every sign of succumbing so we can predict what's happening with other people. Other people are simply too scared to talk about these things, and it's understandable. I can tell you what's happening in HR departments. They're becoming totally paranoid. It's all the more reason to worry about what happens to famous and powerful rich people who should be able to have the courage of their convictions. If you can't be courageous and honest when you have hundreds of millions of dollars and a body of work that you can rest on, when can you grow a spine? But anyway, point taken. This is a much bigger problem than many people realize, and it is not just happening on college campuses. And lest you draw the wrong impression from that answer, if you haven't heard my conversation with Rebecca Traster, I am extremely sympathetic to Me Too in general. I'm just worried about the instances where people are overreaching and being sloppy in their allegations. Here's another meditation question that seems important to answer. Sam, can you please elaborate on what you mean when you say, look for the one who is looking, look for the seat of attention, look for the thinker of thoughts. I meditate every day and literally don't know how I'm supposed to direct my attention when you ask us to do this. Is it simply trying to notice that you are the contents of consciousness in this moment and there's nothing else? There are subtle signals that I have a head, my eyes feel heavy, I can sometimes see my nose, etc. I find myself getting very frustrated when you repeatedly ask me to look for my head. Many thanks. Well, I feel your pain. This is not an easy exercise. And it is possible to meditate for a very long time without glimpsing the intrinsic selflessness of consciousness. One is more or less guaranteed to spend a very long time without this precise instruction, without knowing 
that looking in this way is even an option. But without enough mindfulness, without enough concentration, uh, it can be very hard to follow these instructions. So you're really doing two things at once in the course. You're building mindfulness, ordinary dualistic mindfulness as a tool, but I'm continually reminding you to use it in a potentially non-dualistic way. So I will keep doing that, but to your question, yes, it is somewhat paradoxical. You feel that you are looking, you, the self, the observer, you're the one pointing attention at the breath or at the world. And I'm asking you to turn attention upon itself. Look for yourself. Look for the one who is looking. Look for your mind. When a thought arises, I might say, look for the thinker. And Douglas Harding's famous exercise of looking for your head is for many people a better instruction. You're looking out at the world, notice that you don't see your head, right? Where your head is supposed to be, there's just the world. But now as you point out, it's possible for you to experience the limitations with that because you, if you look down, you can see the side of your nose. You have other sensations beyond sight that tell you that your head exists. As you said, you can feel pressure in your eyes. But the point is, is that everything you can notice is appearing in consciousness. Right? Consciousness is the prior condition. So the feeling of self is appearing insofar as you feel it in any way at all. The feeling that you have a face, the feeling that you have a head, those too are appearances. And in meditation, what you're doing is you're dropping back and merely being what you already are as a matter of experience, the condition in which everything appears. And again, I'm not making any metaphysical claims about the status of consciousness with respect to the rest of the universe. I'm not saying that it's not arising in your brain. I'm just talking about what can be noticed from the first person side. I'm talking about the character of conscious experience when you really pay attention. So this instruction of turning attention upon itself, looking for the self, looking for the center of consciousness, it's not that you can do it successfully. It's not like there's a, a full turning that can be accomplished and there's something to find. It's that the effort to do it can reveal that it can't be done and that there's nothing to find in a way that does change your perception of consciousness and its contents in that moment, and probably only for a moment in the beginning. There's a brief glimpse that's possible there where ordinary subject-object perception breaks down. So that if you're looking at an object, let's say you're staring at a glass of water on your desk, and in the moment of looking for your head or looking for yourself, while still looking at the glass of water as an object, you might notice that for a moment there, coincident with the moment of your attempting to turn attention upon itself, there is no subject-object divide. There is simply a totality of experience. It's not that you no longer see the glass, but you're no longer behind your face looking across space at it. 
There's simply everything that's appearing without center. So all I can say is that the frustration you feel is yet more thinking. There's no reason to be judgmental. There's no reason to become contracted around this project. Just in a very relaxed way, keep looking. Keep paying attention. And know that even if it's not clear initially, you're still developing the very powerful tool of mindfulness all the while. To give an athletic analogy, let's say you're learning to surf, right? And you get the board and you take it into the water and you're learning to stand up on it, right? Well, first you, ha- you actually have to learn to get to your feet before you can ride a wave standing up. So the ordinary mindfulness and the exercise of looking for what's looking could be analogous to actually learning to paddle out and actually get to a standing position. Whether you've caught a wave and can ride it for even a second is an additional increment of progress. And you have to be able to put yourself in the right position to make that progress. So these are the mechanics of doing that. But what it's like to actually drop onto the face of a wave and surf, that is harder to describe. So anyway, there are steps, and subsequent steps can seem totally inscrutable from the place you're stuck. If you can't stand up on the board, right, if every time you push on your hands, you can't figure out how to get your feet under you, you don't have the muscular strength or the balance, you just can't even figure out how to start, you have to keep trying so that you can get past that point. And in this case, the antithesis of being able to get up on the board, the thing that will prevent you from doing anything useful here, is to not have enough mindfulness to break the spell of your identification with thought. If you're identified with thought in every moment, as you are when you're getting frustrated, you can't do the exercise. So just keep practicing. And eventually these things will clarify themselves. Is morality limited to humans? For example, when a group of chimps brutally murder another for no reason, is that immoral? They are social, intelligent, capable of suffering and intentionality. So can they behave immorally? Yes, by my standard, they can. Because morality for me just relates to questions about the well-being of conscious creatures. So just ask it this way. Are chimps absolutely maximizing their capacity for well-being in each other's company? Seems unlikely, right? If chimps were smarter, they could play a better game, right? And they could probably play a better game than they do even with their current intelligence. And there's no question that they do suffer and that they have proto-moral concerns. Uh, In fact, much of our morality is detectable in chimp society. They have expectations of fairness and reciprocity, for instance. There's an enormous amount of social pressure there. So something like the golden rule is present among chimps. They're just not so good at following it, and they have some painful hierarchies there to navigate. But uh, yeah, we're just talking about a landscape of possible experience that chimps are on, and For the most part, they do not seem to be having 
enviable lives. What are your thoughts about lucid dreaming? Does it make sense to acquire this skill? Yeah, well, insofar as lucid dreaming is just greater awareness of what your situation actually is. So, for those who haven't heard of it, lucid dreaming is the experience of recognizing in the middle of a dream that it's a dream and that everything that seems to be happening isn't in fact happening. And what happens to most people in that situation is that they suddenly wake up, right? That becoming lucid in the middle of a dream is synonymous with its ending. But there are techniques that people have discovered for maintaining the dream state while remaining lucid. And there's a fascinating phenomenology here. A researcher at Stanford, Stephen LeBurge, has been writing about this for decades. Uh, I don't have a lot of experience with it. I occasionally have lucid dreams, and I find them very interesting. Part of the phenomenology here is that for those who have really explored the dream world, they find that certain things stably reveal the difference between the dream state and the waking state. So, for instance, if you look at some text on a page or on a screen and then look away and look back at the text, it'll never be the same. For some reason, the dreaming brain can't seem to keep that part of the world constant. I don't know if anyone can disconfirm that, but that seems true in my experience and has been widely reported. It's also been reported that if you walk into a dark room and turn on the lights in a house in your dreams, those lights will always be governed by a dimmer switch. Right? The lights will not suddenly come on, apparently covering for the brain's inability to produce visually rich content on demand all of a sudden. So, yeah, there's a lot to notice about the dream world, and it does seem like a kind of mindfulness. And in fact, Tibetan Buddhists have been practicing what they call dream yoga for centuries. And if you ever become lucid in a dream and then sit down to meditate, well, then very interesting things can happen. Uh, So, yes, it's a real phenomenon. It's interesting. I certainly encourage your own efforts in this area. I just read an article about a Dutch man who wants to legally change his age from 69 to 49. He argues this is the same as allowing transgender people to legally change their sex. These two scenarios do not feel the same to me, but I'm having trouble elucidating why. Could you discuss your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, that is a, a fascinating case. Um, it, it almost sounds like it has the makings of a hoax, but it does prove a point. You can make the case that ageism is a problem, that people who are 49 have many advantages that people who are 69 don't. You know, you might want to hire a 49-year-old and not want to hire a 69-year-old. I haven't read about this particular case, but I'm sure this person can point to ways in which he thinks he's disadvantaged. And this does connect with a fairly common sense that we all have of not really feeling our age. Certainly on a good day, you can feel much younger than you are. You know, not knowing whether or not this person is trolling all of humanity here, it does present itself as a kind of reductio ad absurdum of transgenderism. It's similar to what happened in the Rachel Dolezal case, where she claimed to be black, but in fact she's white, but she identifies as being black. And then one philosopher 
Rebecca Tuval had the temerity to wonder, well, if transgenderism is okay, why is transracialism obviously ridiculous? And she was quickly hurled from the ramparts of the ivory tower. Yeah, it's not clear to me what's wrong with this. And I think it is merely contingent upon the fact that we don't have millions of people complaining that they have this problem and have not been recognized, right? If this were fairly common, as common as transgenderism, it would be hard to resist. However, I do suspect that this person is trolling us and doing so rather brilliantly. Okay, well, I'm going to leave it there. And thank you once again for all your questions. Uh, I know many of you are not satisfied with the AMA page as it's currently structured, and you should know that I too am not satisfied with it. So we will be revamping all of that and making many changes to the website. But again, thanks for listening, and I'll see you back here soon.